Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, and on this episode of Better Off, we are helping women entrepreneurs navigate the new revolution. Once you get so close to that position that you've been vying for your whole career, that vice president or even C-level position, so close that you can see what it ate for breakfast and how often it sees their kids and really what their quality of life is, you know, those corner offices are not made for for women or for anybody who cares about their families. Mm. And so what happens is they see it, they leave, and what do they do? They become entrepreneurial because they're not less ambitious. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. We're sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. Hey, women, entrepreneurs, male entrepreneurs, you may want to listen up. Our guest, Natalie Molina Nino, she's here today to talk about her new book. It's called Leapfrog, The New Revolution for Women Entrepreneurs. Uh, She's got Five very specific steps as to how women uh, and underrepresented people can actually break through and avoid this whole, you know, bro culture, VC, private equity nonsense. It's really interesting. And she's got a great outlook. So here's our interview with Natalie Molina Nino. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Natalie Molina Nino, welcome to the program. Thank you, and I'm impressed with your pronunciation. It's about as far as I can go with my Spanish. (laughs) Uh, Senorita Fuchs, who taught us very well in AP Spanish, (laughs) she would at least expect that. You have written a new book. It's called Leapfrog, The New Revolution for Women Entrepreneurs. But before Mm -hmm. we get to that book and how women entrepreneurs need to be managed differently and think differently... Tell us about the very best career or money decision you've ever made in your life. I would have to say that it was an unintuitive one. I took a few years off. And that was the best decision because? It was the best decision because it allowed me to pivot completely in my career. One, two, it helped me charge the batteries. And in the process, I spent some time... Back in academia, I went to Columbia and I co-founded the Center for Women Entrepreneurs, which ended up, you know, introducing me to all of the people that are kind of now central to my life. That's so great. I love that. And it is not intuitive because it's scary to take time off. Hugely scary. And I didn't have a baby. I didn't have an accident. I didn't have like there was no sort of, quote unquote, good excuse. Right. right? And then you start to worry like, well, what happens? Am I going to be left behind, mm-hmm. right, if mm-hmm. I take this time? But instead, it really accelerated everything for me. All right. Tell us a little bit about your life story. Where Where are you from? I'm from L.A., and I grew up splitting my time between L.A. and Ecuador. And how did you find yourself in New York? This move, this decision to take a sabbatical and go the one place in the world where I feel the most calm and relaxed, which makes no sense to anyone, but it's Manhattan. Why did you want to find this space for female entrepreneurs? I had been in tech for 15 years. I had been the only woman in the room for a lot of my career, and and in some cases, the only woman and certainly the only Latina in the building, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was it was a question of, I think that when I was uh, early in my career, I felt that there was a, a dichotomy of, of really a choice that I had to make. I could be an activist. I could um, be that person who speaks out about the inequities that I see around me, especially in tech. 
or I could be a good business person. And I opted to focus on feeding the mouths of the people who I was supporting. Tell us about some of the data behind why it's harder for female entrepreneurs. Sure. Women entrepreneurs, depending on what study you look at, are getting single-digit percentages of, for example, venture capital. And if you actually slice that data even further, the single digits, whether it's um, 3 or 5%, depending on what study you look at, um, is not a complete picture. Because actually, if you slice it down to women of color and what percentage they get of venture capital, for example, it's 0.1, What is uh, the alternative for, for those women? What sure. are they doing right now to fund their ideas? Well, they're being super scrappy, right? They're going crowd the crowdfunding route, and women are disproportionately more successful at crowdfunding than men. Mm-hmm. For once, you know, we're ahead uh, when it comes to the financing side of things. And the other thing that they're doing, which is the reason that I really wrote the book, is they're staying small. Right. So the majority of women owned businesses are micro entrepreneurs. They are micro businesses that are not exceeding the one million dollar a year in revenue mark, which concerns me Mm. because there is no way that the majority of the population. In fact, there's no way that the group in our country's population that is more entrepreneurial than anyone else, especially black and brown women. They're starting businesses more than anyone else. There is no way that by design they want or need to stay small. Mm. I think it's a lack of resources. It's a lack of connections. um, It's a lack of those friends and families that can write, you know, $100,000 checks for them. Right. Do a friend and family round. Raise your first million or two and then come (laughs) to us. Like a lot of people get that response. And these people, you know, if you don't come from a family of means, who's writing those checks, right? There's a hack in the book that's called F your friends and family round. Because I do think that it is the sort of quintessential example of how out of touch we are in the finance industry to name an entire category of financing, something that 95% of people in the United States cannot relate to because they don't have friends and family that can write checks of that size. Why are women better at bootstrapping and why are they more entrepreneurial in your mind? I think out of necessity. Mm. You know, I think uh, when I look at large corporations, right, I've worked with Microsoft, Starbucks, all of the the large sort of um, corporations in the Seattle area where I was based. Um, And they had a problem. They were investing time, energy and fast tracking women to get to the executive level. And they were dropping. Right. They were dropping before they got to GM, vice president level. And that's not unique to them. Mm -hmm. That's something that we see across the board. Women leave. My thesis is that they leave because once you get so close to that position that you've been vying for your whole career, that vice president or even C-level position, so close that you can see what it ate for breakfast and how often it sees their kids and really what their quality of life is, you know, those corner offices are not made for for women or for anybody who cares about their families. Mm. And so what happens is they see it, they get close enough to sort of smell, see, you know, experience it, they leave. And what do they do? They become entrepreneurial because they're not less ambitious, you know, and even having children doesn't mean that they're working fewer hours. They're just doing it on their terms. It's interesting. I was uh, once on a panel. Mm -hmm. I was asked to conduct a panel of a bunch of Wall Street powerhouse ladies. Mm -hmm. And it was a closed forum, so I can't tell you who said it, but Mm -hmm. it was really kind of eye opening. There was a question from the audience about, you know, how do you balance being a mother of three mm. and, you know, having this elevated position yeah. in a big investment bank? And it was like, for the first time, an incredibly candid answer, mm. which was, I don't balance anything. <laughs> I have a stay-at-home husband. Yeah. We have a lot of help because I make a bunch of money. Mm-hmm. And if you want to get to this position, you ought to really understand you will not have a work-life balance. Mm-hmm. So if you want this... 
know it going in. Yeah. Do we have to be more honest about that? A hundred percent. I was talking to someone who I also can't name at a major bank. And she said that of all of the women at the executive level that were her peers, she was the only one that had a working husband. Really? Yep. That's interesting. Yep. Again, we don't hear that. Right. Right. Um, I think that at the moment, you know, we make lemonade out of the lemons we've got. And that's largely sort of my perspective. Mm -hmm. It's like, yes, I would love for the work environment to change. Yes, I would love for, you know, the U.S. to have paid leave across the board. So many things that I would love to be the case. But today, right now, Mm. how do we manage it? And it's stories like what you and I are talking about. They don't fit the nice headlines of work-life balance. If you're working, how do you know whether or not your idea is one that you could basically leave the workforce and leave that guarantee of that Mm -hmm. paycheck and Mm -hmm. the benefits. What is your advice to someone who's like, I got an idea. What, What are the steps we go to? I love that question because what everyone else will tell you, there's this feeling in the startup world that you're either all in or you're a failure, right? And so they create these environments like these incubators that are basically frat houses. You live in them for three months. You know, they're not suited for people with children. They're not suited for anybody who has a side hustle or anybody who has a day job. And you have to be all in and who can afford to do those things? And it's a reason why you look at the people who are successful in startups and they tend to be disproportionately white male and trust fund babies. Mm. Right. Nothing wrong with that. But I yeah, wish whole, we could have those trust total, funds. And I, you know, who doesn't want their kids to be the trust fund baby? Mm-hmm. I mean, we all aspire to that. But the reality is, is most people, in fact, most entrepreneurs don't have those set of criteria. And so for me, the thing that I would say is that that vibe and that sort of cultural push of all in or nothing won't even let you in the incubator if you haven't quit your day job. I don't think that's real. I think the reality is, is you can have a side hustle. You, in fact, should have a side hustle to test the waters and to make sure that if you do have a family and you don't have a safety net and you don't have, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in your savings account, that you are being safe, right? But I do think that to your question about how do you know, you take that idea, you develop it to a certain point, and once you get to the point, and I'm an engineer, so for me it's all about the numbers, once you get to the point where that side hustle has the potential to get you to the point where you're making more money with the side hustle than in the day job, that's when you start to have to add, you know, ask questions, right? We, we had uh, Chris Gillibo on the show. Yeah. He wrote the book Side Hustle. Yeah. And, uh, and I love him because he really is into this idea that you cannot just make it a black and white no. decision, right? It's not nope. binary. And that, you know, a lot of good ideas should not be businesses. Mm-hmm. They could just be a, a good idea or yeah. a good side hustle or something that maybe you're not even going to want to pursue. Yeah. So I think that that's great advice. So you have these five sections of the book. Mm-hmm. In the first section, you're basically saying, you know, are you ready and how you're thinking about this? Mm-hmm. So let's presume that you get to the point where you you say, okay, yeah, it's a good thing. I'm making some money from it. I see how to, I see how to scale. What, what happens next? Sure. Uh, One of my favorite stories is Angela Lee's, right? Angela Lee, who started 37 Angels, started three or four other side hustles before she finally got enough traction with this one, 37 Angels, to decide that she was ready to leave her, her day job. But what she did is she still created a safety net for herself. She was teaching at Columbia, where she still teaches today, right? Mm -hmm. And so she had created that safety net where it wasn't as demanding a day job. 
you know, as a day job, I should say, but it was a bit of a safety net. And so I think that creating those safety nets to give you the freedom to go out and experiment, bringing the right people on board, starting to decide who is that core team of people that are going to help me get from point A to point B. And then the other thing, and this goes into the later stages of the book, it's about also finding alternative forms of financing, right? It's about getting over this obsession with venture capital. So let's let's stop there for Please. a second because I think that, you know, we hear about all these, you know, mm-hmm. first round, second round, da, 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 da. so what is it about venture capital? What's the best part of it? What's the worst part of it? So the best part of it is when and women tend to not be a part of this equation, but when you are one of those people who has a brilliant idea, who can articulate it well, even, you know, the stereotype of behind a napkin, right? And present it to somebody. Venture capital is there to take risks on those early stage ideas and give them disproportionate amount of power in the form of capital and advising to get them up off the ground, especially the moonshots, the crazy ones, right? The reality, though, is that, you know, back of the napkin ideas tend to get funded more when they're written by white men who look like Mark Zuckerberg. But when it works, it works to get an idea that might not have ever gotten off the ground a life. It gives them a life. But what's the downside? There are people who've talked about doing deals with the devil. So Mm -hmm. what's the downside of getting all that money? So the downside of getting the money, especially in a VC framework, is that VC by design is geared towards short-term thinking, right? And my personal story around that is that I distinctly remember in the early days of my career being really glad that I had adults in the room in the form of, you know, investors who could save me from myself. I was in my early 20s. What did I know about running businesses, right? But as soon as I got to the point where I was good at running businesses, as soon as I really felt accountable to these people that I was supporting, it became really clear to me that we had differing priorities. Venture capitalists were pushing for short-term returns. They wanted that exit. They wanted that acquisition or that IPO. And they wanted it within a time frame of two, three, four years. Whereas I was building a business that needed to stay alive 10, 15, 20 years. I was building a true future and a forever business. Mm-hmm. And that's when it became really clear that my interests were actually in conflict in conflict with most investors. I think that in many ways, when you go into business for yourself, you, you do have to understand what is the goal. Sure. If your goal is just to make money as fast as you possibly can. And exit. And get out, right? Yeah. Okay, that's one thing. But if you want to build something and do something, it is a different choice. It is. It's also, it's a different culture. It's a different set of priorities. It's a different relationship you want to have with anybody touching your business, including the people that are bringing you finance, right? And also, I think there's something to be said about, you know, the people who are partnered with you on the financing side being invested in your future, invested in the sort of culture that you want to build, you know? And I think that women tend to want forever businesses. We want to be, and as an investor, and I I don't want to generalize because, you know, I think that there are plenty of women who want to IPO and exit as well. But I do think that we want, we tend to want to build things, right? And when you build things, a lot of the times what happens in VC is you've built a piece of software, that software gets acquired, it ends up being a line of code in somebody else's software, you didn't create a single job out of it. As an investor, I want to build things and not build things that disappear within two or three years, but build things that last. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to our interview with Natalie Molina Nino in just a moment. Uh, But, you know, look, you don't have to be an entrepreneur to hit it big. You can just do the job of saving and investing and planning and reach your financial goals. How do you know that you're saving and investing for the life you want? Well, our sponsor, Betterment, is here to help you out. 
essentially, they want to help you figure out how to get where you want to go. Betterment offers personalized advice and a suite of tools to help you know whether you're on track to hit your investing goals or get the retirement you want. You get everything for one low transparent management fee. You know that all investing involves risk. But better off listeners, you can get up to one year managed for free. Free. For more information, visit Betterment.com slash better off. That's Betterment.com slash better off. And now back to our interview with Natalie Molina Nino. So tell me about Brava. What does Brava do? So we invest in businesses that can prove to us that they are creating an economic impact on women at scale. And they don't have to be women-owned? No. So they have to improve a woman's life? Actually, they have to improve women's lives at scale. So that's an important distinction because I'm really looking for scale. If your business essentially makes one woman, the founder, or 10 women or 100 women in an office um, economically better off, great. But that's not scale. I okay. don't consider that scale. So right. give us some some examples of, of cool businesses that you're like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Yeah. So I'll give you an example of uh, one that we're invested in. Uh, we're about a year and a half old, um, so our portfolio is not large. And then I'll give you some examples of ones that I'm tracking. Okay. Um, so one that I'm invested in is the perfect case study. My friends say that I manifested it. Because <laughs> <laughs> you made this happen, Natalie. I know. It just like happened. Because I used to say, when I described the thesis, I used to say, the reason I don't focus exclusively on female founders is because what happens if I'm cho- I'm choosing between the next, I don't know, Spanx, right? God bless them. They'll be a great, successful business. Um, but they'll ultimately make what? a handful of people, very wealthy, founded by a woman, right? Versus I get two men who come to me and say, we've cured breast cancer. If I'm really looking to make an impact at scale, yeah, I need to be choosing B. So one of the companies that I, my, again, my friends say I manifested was two guys who come to me and say, there is no developed nation, so not one of the G20, have the birth control pill available over the counter. Mm. There is no medical reason for the birth control pill to require a prescription. Right. The data is clear. The studies have approved it again and again. There's been a whole international working group for the last 15 years that has been advocating for this. And so they came to me and they said, we figured it out. We're going to take the birth control pill over the counter. And again, my colleagues who required a woman founder might not have even taken that meeting. And so that's why I think we need both. It's not that I necessarily think that my thesis is the only way, but we need every tool in the toolbox. And mine is just one that I wasn't seeing at play. How do you have all this money to invest in? How did Brava come to exist? And how do you raise money? And who who are the people who are investors in Brava? Sure. The most notable, of course, is Howard Buffett. This is Warren Buffett's grandson. Um, In addition to that, we have Todd Morley, who's one of the founders of Guggenheim Partners. Um, we have Kat Cole, who, you know, is uh, the COO of Focus Brands, looking after businesses like Auntie Anne's, Carvel's, Cinnabon. Um, I looked around not just at investors who could write checks, but I looked for investors who could add that operational skill set that complements mine. I have an experience in taking businesses global, but only in the digital space. Someone like Kat, who was involved in the global expansion of Hooters and Cinnabon and all of these brick and mortar businesses, her perspective of going international is very different from mine. Do you think that her participating in Brava could possibly make up for the fact that she worked for Hooters? In the balance sheet of life, is she is she kind of okay oh, now? You've got to get her in here, and you'll see that she on the balance sheet she is off the chart. She does so much work all over the world. She's like, amazing. God, okay. So when you are trying to look at these businesses, yeah. and you have these two guys who come in, 
they could make this to scale, but there are obviously a lot of hurdles. Sure. So for them here in the U.S., we have a, a regulatory structure that's really tough. Yep. How are you helping them get over that hurdle? So that's a part of what our secret sauce is. And that's kind of what I did with the book is I brought everyone that I think is the best of the best in all these different sectors. And I had them bring to bear their experience, right? And so with Bravo, we do it no differently, right? We have regulatory people. We have people involved in politics. We have people on the inside of, for example, the woman, Jess Wiener, who's also in the book, who's also an investor and an advisor at Brava. Jess is the person behind the curvy, brown, curly-haired Barbie, right? She's behind the uh, self-esteem campaign at Unilever that Dove did. Mm, I right? loved that. Yeah. So she's, I would say, the world's foremost expert on selling compelling products that are meaningful to women and girls, mm-hmm. right? Who better than that to take a product like this to market? Which of the developed nations do you think is most apt to adopt that first over the counter? The U.S. first. Really? Because to your point, um, the FDA is a tough regulatory entity. And as a result, there are a lot of other developed nations who provided you have that FDA approval. Oh, it accelerates theirs. I right? see. What ideas are you tracking? All right. So there's a company that I just love. It's a mother and a daughter founder. Um, And they have figured out a way to take human mother's milk, to dry it, to store it at room temperature for up to 30 days. And recently they went from producing, I think, a thousand gallons a month to moving to their operation in Nevada with some sort of state government subsidy. They're producing a thousand gallons a day. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. And they're only selling to hospitals. And what I love is I love looking at a company that's doing well already, but has a potential for something really disruptive and some growth that I can help make happen. Right. And so I asked them, when are you going to start selling direct to consumer? And the question was, well, as soon as we find somebody to help us do that. I always love asking women this question, smart women. So what are the three classes that every woman all right we'll let a boy hang on to this as well (laughs) what three classes must every college graduate take all right well i'm biased on the first one yeah okay go on because i teach entrepreneurship at barnard i think every woman needs to take an entrepreneurship class whatever flavor it is um to get exposed to what it is i think too often we confuse it with a career path when i think it's a life skill Right. Okay. great. If if you're really good at what you do and if you're a doctor, chances are you're going to start your own practice. Guess what? Now you're an entrepreneur. So that's the first one. Take an entrepreneurship class. Second one is a little unintuitive, but I like that, as you know. Um, Take an improv class. Improv? Absolutely. Really? I cannot think of anything that supports people, whether they be entrepreneurs or not, in their career than to learn to flex that muscle of being both creative and flexible and dynamic. All of those things that... I hate to say this, kids starting college don't learn because they're taught to be perfect. Mm -hmm. They're taught to not take risks. Mm. Take that class where you can slam dunk, get that A, because you need that straight A, you know, record to get into any of the Ivy Leagues where it's just a baseline. Everybody has a perfect, Hmm. you know, record. Okay, so I've got entrepreneurship, I've got improv, and now what's your third class? I would say some psychology class because Hmm. I think that the complex problems that we have today are not the problems that are going to be solved by some PhD in a lab all by herself, right? They require collaboration, they're complex, they're interdependent, and the only way that you're going to thrive in an environment that is complex like that is by knowing how to play well with others. You have um, a foot in many worlds. You have many feet. I'm looking (laughs) and you have two, and yet you have like eight, essentially. And you are 
trying to bridge the gap among all of these different worlds that you're in. Mm. I do want to talk about how we can try to raise the bar in companies Mm -hmm. specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a lot of people who are listening here who just, they're workers. They're not, they don't want to necessarily be entrepreneurs, but how do we make room for multiculturalism? How do we make room for diversity? Like forgetting about the stupid class you have to take and like, oh, this is the green card, the red card, Mm -hmm. the yellow card. What is it that people really need to think about as they're navigating their careers and how to be more open towards people around them? It's so different now, right, than than generations before. You will have, whether you want to or not, have multiple careers, you know, obviously multiple jobs. And the only way to stand out from the pack, and this is why I keep calling entrepreneurship a life skill, right, and not a career path necessarily, is to be entrepreneurial, which to me just means be creative, be scrappy. And the thing is, is I found that most of the advice out there is for people with these really big safety nets. And so I think that there's something to be said for this next generation of entrepreneurial thinking in some ways that accounts for the majority of the entrepreneurs that are actually out there, right? That accounts for those people who were scrappy out of necessity. And so I think in terms of people navigating their career path, for example, Lean Startup, Eric Reese, right? He has a yearly conference that is called Lean Startup. It's supposed to be for entrepreneurs. And yet he was telling me that 40% of the people who attend are actually people from corporate. If 40% of the people that are going to the Lean Startup Conference are people from corporate, then it tells you that everybody in the corporate space, you know, from mid to large to uber large, are appreciating that the way to thrive and to move forward in your career involves utilizing the same skills that entrepreneurs need every single day. All right, we started the interview with your best career or money decision. You said taking a sabbatical, essentially. Mm -hmm. What was your worst? Oh, the worst career decision that I've made was prioritizing the culture of profits first and adopting it as my way of running businesses. Mm. Um, I tell a story in the book about a time when in order to meet a deadline, in order to recover from a project that a massive, one of the biggest companies in the world was threatening to sue us over. I had cots set up in the office. I had people working 24-7 weekends. It was one of those things where like, we had to salvage this project. And I had a guy call in sick. um, And I had, this was in Dublin, I had my team go to his house with instructions to bring him into the office by whatever means necessary because we had to deliver that day. You know, and I was so cutthroat and I had bought into the idea that, you know, profits above everything. And the next day he called in sick again with um, the news that he was in the cardiac ward at the hospital, you know, and it was a real wake up call for me. Mm. I had put profits over the lives of human beings. Wow. That's a rough one. Mm. He survived. A life lesson. I survived. Yeah, he survived. survived, Exactly. But um, I learned a lot and I shifted gears. Natalie Molina Nino. I'm impressed. Senorita Fuchs. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Well, it's time for the listener question of the week. And remember, you've got a couple chances every week to get on the air. After our interview segment on Thursdays, we have this question of the week. But also on Tuesdays, just for fun, we have the Better Off bonus call of the week. To get on the air with us, you have to talk to us. And the easiest way to do that is to send an email. 
askjill at betteroffpodcast.com. Askjill at betteroffpodcast.com. That is what Lisa did. Hello, Lisa. Welcome to the show. What can I do for you? Hi, Jill. I'm a big fan of your show, first of all. Thanks so much for taking my question. Um, so I have a, um, an opportunity to invest in something called a multi-index universal uh, life insurance policy. Uh, now, a little uh, background about myself. I'm uh, 41. I'm married. Uh, we have three kids that are uh, uh, elementary school age. And my husband and I combined, uh, you know, make a, a middle six-figure income. So wait, wait, hold on. Wait, middle, when, when we say middle six-figure, are we talking like five or nine? Because sometimes people say uh, middle, and I want to know a little bit more. Give me a little bit more of a concrete range. I would say like five to six hundred. Okay, got it. So that's together, five to six hundred. Got it. Three kids, okay. all in elementary school. Okay. So we, uh, you know, we, we do fairly well with savings. Uh, we live in a high cost of living area, but we have a very low interest rate mortgage, very low student loan debt at less than 1%. So at this point, we're focusing more on um, building up our assets and planning for our kids' college. Mm-hmm. Uh, we managed to save, you know, a good amount in their 529s. And there's a little bit left over, and we want to do something more than um, just, you know, a high-interest savings account or, you know, a brokerage account that uh, has associated fees and taxation when you take out the money. So right. um, I have a, a family member who is a financial planner, and just for a small fee, she did some sort of plotting of what our income is and what we can expect from the future. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she... She also offered us this multi-index universal life. Uh, and there's a few reasons why she did that. Can I uh, interrupt you for one second? I just want to make sure, sure I understand one quick thing. Um, you said you got the low mortgage interest rate. You got low interest student loans. You're funding 529s. Are you maximizing retirement plans currently? Absolutely. My husband and I both put the maximum allowable amount in our 401ks. We also have been investing in um, IRAs that we convert to Roth every year. So we've got about uh, 60000 in Roth IRAs since we've been married. Um, okay. So we're running out of tax-efficient uh, investment vehicles. Very, but that, but uh, thankfully, uh, you still have more money left, which is great. How much money is, so sixty grand in the Roth, how much is in total retirement assets right now? I believe in, in my 401k, there's probably about uh, 350, mm-hmm. and in my husband's, probably about 200. Okay, great. So when uh, your family member ran the numbers for you, how did the retirement numbers look based on what you have and your contribution level currently? Uh, you know, thankfully, it's, you know, it looks pretty, pretty good. I mean, we certainly don't have anything to worry about uh, financially because our expenses are, you know, relatively low compared to our income. Yeah. You know, we, we may even have, you know, probably an, an equivalent or potentially even higher income in retirement than we do now. Hmm. That's but, sort of you know, interesting because it makes it makes me think that the whole idea about your tax efficiency Maybe we should rethink that. I mean, you do, you are using the Roth, which is great. But if your income is going to be higher in retirement and we know that tax rates, even though you're in the highest tax rate, you know, if you're over 600. But let's say let's say most of your income is coming in. You're probably at some effective tax rate of like 33 percent. 
if we were to assume that tax rates will likely rise over the next 25 years, which I happen to think they will, maybe that focus on putting all that money in tax efficient vehicles may be wrong headed. How much are you putting into the 529s right now? Uh, right now, they have about 75000 each. Mm-hmm. And my, you know, the kids are still elementary school age. And that's sort of another black box because who knows how much college is going to cost. I mean, certainly can't continue to rise at the same rate as it's been going recently. Um, I feel like at some point it's going to reach a ceiling where people are just going to stop going to college because <laughs> it doesn't make financial sense anymore. Yeah. How much are you putting into those 529s every year right now? We don't have anything automatic set up. We kind of just do it based on on what we have every mm, year. But mm. we have the potential to put in, you know, probably another 50 for each of the three kids every year. I mean, I wouldn't go crazy and overfund it. I mean, honestly, if you just if you put in 50, 125, how old is the oldest of the three? Seven. Ten years. You know what? I'd probably top it off and say, like, I'd put maybe... 100 to 125 in each of them, maybe, maybe 100. I'd probably leave it at that. I'd probably say 100 for each of them and then let the money grow and see where you stand. But then maybe instead of you going into a multi-index universal life, which I'm going to tell you right now, I'm sure it's filled with bells and whistles. I get that. But I think you're better off actually having just a plain old brokerage account right now with some flexibility once you get your your uh, 529 plans topped off. And the reason is that I think that there's a hyper focus that you're feeling about like tax efficiency because you are in a high tax bracket. But in a sense, I'd, I almost would like take this bet. I'm going to bet that you are in a better place paying your taxes today and, and having some money that's already been taxed and put that to work rather than roll the dice on doing something else like a multi-index universal life, which at the end of the day, you're going to have some cash value in. But if you access that cash value, you'd have to borrow it out so you don't pay income tax on it. And I'm not sure that that does a lot for you. Do you already have life insurance? We do have uh $2 million each in term life insurance policies, my husband and I. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're, we're covered in that respect. I was actually more interested in the long-term care mm. aspect of that because I, I have had some relatives with health issues and one depleted their entire estate and the other one had to move to a, a you know, back to the country they were born in mm. to get, you know, the, the national health care that's free that they have because they couldn't afford their right. home care expenses. Right. Obviously, they didn't, they didn't have the same resources that my husband and I have. Right. Um, but, I mean, you know. so, so, I mean, this has some sort of long-term care rider. I think these hybrid plans are interesting, okay? I do. I, and, and I get, you know, why you might think about this. I'm wondering if just because of your age and the cost of these policies, whether this is really the right idea. I mean, you don't need the life insurance. You really would be buying for long-term care. Is that correct? Right. The life insurance part is just, I guess, a wealth transfer tool, I guess, to beneficiaries. Yeah. I'm just not convinced that you need that kind of policy. It's very expensive. Do you have a financial advisor or planner? Um, I Well, I have, you know, this individual yeah, no, family member. I mean, I'm sorry, outside of that person. Oh, not specifically. Okay. I, you know, I try to stay up on, um, you know, the 
things I, I need to be doing just by reading and researching on my own. I think you're going to need a third, uh, a third opinion. You've got your own opinion. You've got the family member. And I want a third opinion. And, and I think that the other opinion has to be from somebody who you can just pay a flat fee and say, could you please look at what I have and tell me what you think? So many of these products are vastly more expensive than people need. And we we turn to them because we want some certainty in our lives, right? We, we say, you're saying to me, hey, I'm Lisa. I make a bunch of money. I'm going to be okay for retirement. But what if something bad happens to me? Now, maybe doing an analysis, I would say there's absolutely no reason for you to buy this policy. You're, you're self-insuring. That's it. You're wasting your money. You're may- maybe wasting 2 or 3% a year on a product that you don't need. And I would have to do a deeper dive into really whether or not we think that this is the most appropriate way to prepare for a potential long-term care event. And that I'm not convinced of right now from what you tell me. I'm just running as we speak. I'm just looking at back-of-the-envelope calculations. I'm worried that, that again, that need for security and being prepared and being really smart is going to come at a very high cost. So if you don't mind, can I hook you up with a couple of people who might be able to take a look at this for you? I would love that. Oh, thank goodness. And do you have all of your estate planning done already? Yes. Yeah, we're in the process of all that. So we've got, you know, wills and setting up trusts and all that. Okay, great. Um, the, the other thing I was thinking that if you were to buy this big insurance product, you know, how it's held, should it be a second to die policy? I don't know. I'm just thinking about, I'm thinking ahead. So whatever you decide about the insurance, you'd want to weave in the estate part of it as well. Okay. All right. Now, hang on. Mark is going to kindly uh, take down some information for me, and then we are going to follow up with you. And I really, I wish you the very best of luck. I, I think that you are you you may be able to avoid paying for a big fat insurance policy. That's just my gut, but I want someone else to verify it. So hang on one second, and thank you so much for calling, Lisa. Thanks so much to Natalie Molina Nino and our caller, Lisa. Don't forget, we drop new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday of Better Off. And the way you can get them very quickly and efficiently is to actually download the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can subscribe. Apple, Google Play, Radio.com, Stitcher, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you want to get on the air live with us, like Lisa, all you have to do is send an email. So easy. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. Our music is composed by the fabulous Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is our executive producer. We are distributed by Cadence 13, and we're sponsored by Betterment. See you next week.